Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our show offers a friendly conversation with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by the Learn It family of companies, including Autism Spectrum Therapies, Trellis Services, and Desert Choice Schools, helping all children succeed in school and life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I am Vice President at Autism Spectrum Therapies and Learn It family of companies. Um, We provide ABA therapy to individuals with autism and developmental disabilities all across the country. Um, Really excited about today's show. This is a a show that I got to admit, I was a little, I was a little hesitant about at first. I wasn't sure if this was um, one that I wanted to jump into, but, you know, as I've said over the years, I feel like this is a, a forum to have conversations and Sometimes these conversations are ones that um, don't always feel great. Maybe you feel a little uncomfortable about, but I think at the end of the day, having these conversations um, really teaches you a lot and is an opportunity to see another perspective, see another point of view. And every time that I, I do so, it maybe changes my mind, maybe it doesn't, but as a as a practitioner, as, as someone who's providing treatment every day, I feel like there's so much that I don't understand. There, there's so much in the areas for me to improve, which ultimately helps my clients improve and um, challenging some of my assumptions, challenging kind of like my, even sometimes, you know, what I believe is valuable. And, and I think this is a show that, um, is is going to do just that, and I know did just that for me. Today I'm joined by, by Amy Lutz. Um, Amy writes about autism and other issues she's encountered as the mother of five children. Her work has been featured on the websites Slate and Babel, among many others. She's one of the founders of EASI Foundation, Ending Aggression and Self-Injury in the Developmentally Disabled, and her advocacy has taken her before the FDA, IACC, which is the Interagency Autism Coordinating Committee, and ISEN, the International Society for ECT and Neurostimulation. Amy holds a bachelor's from the University of Pennsylvania, as well as an MA and MFA from Indiana University. She lives outside Philadelphia. Um, Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, So, um, you know, probably the best place for us to start, you know, you a lot of the um, work you've written, the foundation, um, you really are focusing in on aggressive behaviors. And I think, you know, you've really taken this this title of dangerous behaviors. Um, you know, how do you define and what do you specifically mean by dangerous behaviors? Well, what I'm talking about is aggressive and self-injurious behaviors uh, that are often exhibited in autistic individuals. Most of my work has been with children, but but these behaviors can be very stable over time, and children who are very aggressive and self-injurious often grow into adults who exhibit those same behaviors. And aggression, violent behaviors are very prevalent in the autism population. One study reported almost half, actually it was a little more than half, 53% of children aged 2 to 17 in their study group exhibited these behaviors, Mm -hmm. but there is a big range of of aggressive behaviors and self-injurious behaviors in this population. So I work primarily with, and this comes from, by the way, my own experience with a very aggressive autistic Mm -hmm. son of, of people who, of kids who are so aggressive that they are a real threat to hurt themselves or somebody else. Uh, so some of the families I interviewed for my book, their children were so self-injurious that they detached their own retinas. They've given themselves concussions. They have to almost mm-hmm. live in protective equipment uh, to keep themselves from hurting themselves. And my son was so aggressive against other people uh, that he had to be hospitalized for a year when he was just nine because there was a real threat. He was going to wow. very seriously hurt me or my husband or, or one of his teachers. 
I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we, we're making this distinction because I feel like, you know, especially in the um, in the provider community, you know, the, the the people I work with, we we all have very different definitions of aggression, um, and we use the term aggression so interchangeably, you know. So, you know, being clear, like we're not talking about a kid who is pinching someone on the arm or. Um, a little kid, a five-year-old who's maybe scratching someone, you know, the type of behaviors you're talking about are, are the, the other end of the spectrum, this extreme kind of, as you said, and, and that's why I kind of like that term, we're talking about dangerous behaviors, where it's a true safety risk and a, a, to someone being a danger to themselves and others. Absolutely. Um, there was a case a few years ago where an autistic young man killed his mother in, in, in a rage, uh, then that's wow. the kind of level of aggression that I'm talking about. Yeah. That was a, a very famous case with the, and the mom was a professor at Kent State University, and, and she was very involved in his treatment and was really trying to find something to control these rages and was unable to manage them. And, of course, this young man it was not an intent so we are very careful to stress that these behaviors sure. are not to the control of the of the individuals, um, mm-hmm. they are. They can be very, very dangerous, and people get seriously hurt. Or sometimes that aggression right. is directed against the person himself or herself. And I honestly believe there is nothing harder than living and trying to care for someone who is a constant threat to hurt himself or somebody else. Mm. Um, you know, within, within the title of, of your book and, and within so much of your work, you know, the focus is on treatment. So let's so let's talk about treatments. Right. You know, what what are the treatments that you um, we've you know we've traditionally seen here, and what and what are more specifically are the treatments um, that you've been kind of like looking at and, um, and and you know in some cases even kind of advocating for. Well, when you first discover your usually this starts with when children are small, these behaviors mm-hmm. come out pretty early. So when a small child is exhibiting aggressive behaviors just like you brought up earlier, it's unclear if this is going to be a small problem or if this is going to evolve into a larger problem Um, as a child gets older. And typically, uh, you would start with a kind of a behavior plan to address aggressive behavior like pinching or scratching or kicking. You know, when when my son was Mm -hmm. three years old, his aggressive behavior looked a lot like a lot of other neurotypical three-year-olds, you know, tantrums. And so... Um, you start with a behavior plan. You try to uh, reward positive behavior, give consequences like timeouts to negative behavior. You might evolve to a more complicated behavior plan involving a token economy or, or something like that. You try to address behaviors under the assumption that the child has some control over those behaviors. And the way, and if that doesn't work, usually you get to a point with a child where, where a BCBA is brought in to do a functional behavior assessment to try to look at why the child is engaging in mm-hmm. these behaviors. What function do they serve? Is the child trying to get out of schoolwork or is he trying to access a cookie or just get attention from his parents? But then sometimes what the SBA reveals is that there is no function for the behavior, that the child does not have control over the behavior and is not doing it for any reason. It's independent of the environment. It happens across all environments, and it's unpredictable. There are no environmental triggers, and it's these kinds of automatic or it's also called intrinsic behaviors that usually um, necessitate a medical treatment because it's a medical issue. So when you get to the level of behaviors that my son was exhibiting and that the families that I write about, their children were exhibiting, this is kind of well into the realm of medical uh, medically caused behaviors, and mm-hmm. of course, we've all gone through the gamut of uh, of trying many, many different medications. That's usually the first step towards trying to manage these more severe behaviors. Uh, probably the most common family of medications is antipsychotics, like risperdal. Right. And um, I would say most kids with autism and, and kind of severe aggressive self injuries start there. Um, and it's a very tough road, the medical, the medication route. You know, I think any family with a child with severe aggression or self-injury can tell you that 
kids, our kids respond very idiosyncratically to medications. Medications might work for a little while and then they stop working or they just have, give our kids incredibly bizarre side effects or, and sometimes Mm -hmm. they all have very severe side effects too that are well known. Um, And so for kids who are unable to be stabilized with medication, a lot of times the parents end up wondering, you know, how can I stop these behaviors because my child has no quality of life and neither do I um, if we can't stop him from hurting himself or someone else. And that was where we found ourselves. Um, As I mentioned, my son was hospitalized for a year when he was nine and he was stabilized when he came home, but he fell apart soon after. And we were at a juncture where we were forced to consider whether we would have to put him in a long-term residential placement. And then we decided to try electroconvulsive therapy, which we knew had been used with other kids with a similar profile at the hospital that, that Jonah had been uh, had been admitted to for for the almost a year, mm-hmm. and they had had great success using ECT to treat kids who didn't respond to medication or behavior treatment. So we decided to do that. That was seven years ago, and. Wow. Jonah's been really stable ever since then. You know, there's there's so much stuff you talked about there, and and um, you know, so many things I want to kind of go deeper into with you. But you know, I, I kind of want to start with where where you ended is, you know, and I'm sure you get this a lot. Like, you know, I hear ECT, I hear electroconvulsive therapy, and like, there's a part of me that just kind of like pauses. Like, my initial reaction is kind of like, oh wow. Like it's, you know, there, there's obviously, um, I think there's different stigma to it and, and different kind of people have like preconceived notions about so many things. And, you know, even being a behavior therapist, you know, m- my initial reaction to, to some of what, what I'm, what I hear is, you know, like, oh, well, but what about this or what about that? And so, you know, how do you, you know, how do you typically respond? You know, do, do people kind of say along the lines of what I'm, what I'm saying now of like, you know, there's like kind of that, like that pause that just like, oh, wow. And, and, you know, what do you typically kind of, I guess, think about that, respond to it? Um, or is it just not that common at all? Well, I actually think that the stigma surrounding ECT, it's either gotten less over the years or, um, or the people who talk to me just realize that, um, while it may sound icky to them to think of ECT, it's way worse to imagine yeah. a child who's constantly, uh, you know, smashing his head into the wall or attacking his yeah. parents. So when you think about, you know, what's worse, you almost always end up with sure. the untreated behavior is way, way worse. But it's, what's funny yeah. is that I do a lot of writing about issues relating to severe autism, and I mm-hmm. get into a lot of online debates and but the, when I write about ECT, it isn't really the topic to generate the, the thousands of comments about what a bad parent I am as much as the articles I wrote about taking Jonah out to a restaurant that generated that kind of feedback. Really? You know, I don't know. Yeah. So um, I haven't personally had to defend ECT to a lot of haters. I mean, I'm sure they're out there. Wow. Um, yeah, but, sure. But it hasn't really been my experience. No, I mean, I, you know, it's funny. It's 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 interesting because you know, and and maybe it's being in the provider world. Um, I know ECT is part of the behavior. It's it's it is become or or probably not become it. It has been in many areas part of like the behavioral therapy realm. Um, I know behavior analysts who have experience with it. These are typically the the behavior analysts I know are, are older behavior analysts who've been in the field. Um, Longer um, and um, you know, there's a I, when I practiced in Massachusetts, I know there was a center in New England that that often incorporated for their most severe cases, kind of like it sounds um, like we're talking about here with these truly dangerous behaviors. Um, but yeah, just being on the therapy Wait, can side. Can I interrupt you, know, you for I, one second? Absolutely. I just want to make sure that we're we've we are. I just want to take a moment to clarify a point, which is that. <clears throat> So ECT is not the shock therapy or shock treatment that is used at the Uh Judge Rotenberg Center uh, to actually control behavior. 
that, I don't know if that's what you were alluding to, but um, when you yeah. use shock yeah, as like a contingency, you know, uh, that's done on a child who's, uh, you know, awake, who's conscious, and mm-hmm. is used as a punishment for engaging in behavior. Now, this that is not what I'm talking about. So that is shock okay. in the sense of like a, a, an electric dog collar, you know, is to try to teach yeah. a dog to stay away from the edge of a property. It works on that kind of learning theory. ECT is done under general anesthesia. It's a medical procedure used to treat a medical mm-hmm. condition. So the people who, the doctors who prescribe it are not prescribing it as treatment. Uh, these kids mm-hmm. usually end up with a, a, a secondary diagnosis. In Jonah's case, mm-hmm. he has bipolar disorder, you know, rapid cycling bipolar disorder, and that was driving the reason. Sure. So the idea is how can we treat this, this bipolar disorder? And you treat it the way you would treat it in kind of a neurotypical person, which is first he was on lithium, and when that didn't work, and he yep. was kind of getting too cyclical and too manic, the ECT does a great job of kind of stabilizing his mood. Other kids, especially the, the ones who engage in the really repetitive self-injury, end up with a diagnosis of catatonia, um, which mm-hmm. is a fairly common comorbid uh, diagnosis in autistic teenagers, about a little under 20% of autistic teens end up exhibiting catatonic symptoms. And mm-hmm. although we think about catatonia as being like frozen and people who are in postures and rigid and slow, yeah. there's also an agitated form of catatonia where there's a lot of repetitive, meaningless motions, like kind of hitting yourself in the face hundreds of times an hour. And so the doctors who prescribe ECT are doing it to treat these comorbid psychiatric conditions. So and it, by doing so, they resolve the behavior, but it's not considered a behavior therapy. No, I'm, I'm really glad you, you clarified that because I think, you know, when I think of, you know, I, I, I almost kind of said to you before we even started, you know, like I know just enough to be kind of dangerous in all of this, but I truly <laughs> am not, you know, I'm not well read in this. I, I'm not. You know, you know, I, I'm I'm a behaviorist. I'm I come from a, right. a behavior background. You know, and you know, I I I was I was even writing notes to myself as as you were, you know, as we've been talking, and and there's little things where I'm like, well, no, behaviorally, we're going to look at this, so no, wait, this is that. Um, but like I, I, you know, but that's that's my my vision, my view of the world, um, and and I know there's more beyond that, and so I think it's interesting to kind of clarify some of these things because. I think the most behavior analysts think of exactly what you're saying ECT is not. Um, right. You know, I'm 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 even thinking back to, um, you know, and, and now I'm trying to really think back. You know, the very first job in the field I was offered um, was a program that had a history of utilizing um, electroshock, but I don't know exactly. Now I'm questioning. Well, was it actually this? Was it actually that? How did they use it? And fortunately, it's been so many years now, it's, uh, it's, it's too far gone to really remember. But I think a lot of us, at least in the ABA world, that's what we associate ECT with. And without right. even no, knowing no. ECT is not designed. Yeah, ECT is not aversive. It is, it is yeah. done under general anesthesia in a medical environment. So usually in a right. hospital, although you can, we do it outpatient. And sure. um, Joan is put under anesthesia for, it ends up being for about 15 to 20 minutes total. A seizure is induced mm-hmm. in the brain that lasts about two minutes. Wow. And then he recovers from that and he goes to school afterwards. So he doesn't find this, he doesn't, you know, mind going. He goes about three times a month because the changes wow. that occur in the brain with each seizure are transient. So it's almost like dialysis. You have to kind of keep doing it to maintain uh-huh. those gains. Um, but it's not as a punishment for his behavior. It actually corrects the uh, or treats the, the bipolar disorder right. that drives his behavior. I mean, the way you describe it, it's, it's funny. As I was thinking of, um, you know, it's obviously a very different treatment, very different diagnosis, but, you know, it's part of me thinking of... Um, uh, different frequency too, but like I was thinking of someone like going to dialysis. You know the way you were kind right, of describing right. it. It's like you 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 go into the dot to the 
into the hospital, into the doctor's office, and you're receiving this medical treatment. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned how Jonah thinks about all this because, or, or feels about it, because that was going to be my question for you: is you know, does he mind? Um, you know, how does he perceive all this? Because obviously, he's been doing this now. I think you said for seven years. Um, right. Well, how he perceives things is hard to assess because he's very severely sure. autistic. He has intellectual disability. Yeah. He doesn't really talk about his feelings, but I can tell by his behavior. Um, Right. That he doesn't mind going. In fact, um, the BBC did a documentary on ECT and autism that aired um, mm-hmm. just this last May, and it's on YouTube for anyone who's interested. But when they came to film Jonah getting his treatment, uh, he was just kind of, you know, chilling on the, um, kind of on the bed, waiting for things to get underway. And the, mm-hmm. and the producer asked me, has he been sedated already? Like, he was just so relaxed just kind of watching his iPad, mm-hmm. and I said, you know, no, he, has not, he hasn't been sedated. He just doesn't, this doesn't make him uncomfortable. He, does, he doesn't mind being yeah. here because the BBC producer had asked me, just as you did, you know, how do you know that he, that he doesn't find this aversive? And I was like, well, this is how I know. I yeah. can just tell by how he asks when we go. You know, you mentioned, you, you've spoken to other other. Um, other parents, you, you know, you've, especially for your book, you reached out to a lot of different families, and and I, and I know with your foundation, there, there's obviously a lot of different families involved. I mean, I have to assume that the other families you're speaking to, like they're 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 relaying, they're they're kind of articulating similar experiences and stories for them and their family and in child. Yes, I still only spoke to one family uh, that whose child was not helped by ECT, and that story is in my book, and. The mom was not sorry that they tried it. Uh, their child had a very complicated presentation. Uh, they, mm-hmm. Her son didn't find it aversive, so it just didn't help. And so, um, but every other family I've spoken to, their children have been helped in a dramatic fashion, not even just like a little bit, you know, like trying to be, well, did this help or not? It's hard to know. But really... Um, substantial differences. In our case, it was transformative. You know, Jonah went from raging yeah. multiple times a day, some days, to never, ever hitting us. You know, that wow. was just a huge difference and is the only reason that he's still able to live at home and go to school and go out in the community and do his favorite activities. What was what was the turnaround time? You know, you're you're talking about like polar opposites of, of behavior. Yeah. Was this months, years? What, what's that no, turnaround time no. before you start it's, to see this type of transformation? It's fairly quick. So whenever anybody starts ECT, uh, you get uh, you go through what's called the acute stage of treatment, where you get. Mm-hmm. In you know treatment three times a week, say sometimes it's two, but typically three, and you go through this for usually about three weeks or until your symptoms subside. So for Jonah, after I think it was about three weeks, he was pretty stable. He had stopped raging, and uh, we were able to very slowly, um, over the course of many months, spread out the time between treatments into, you know, what we call the maintenance phase of ECT, um, Mm -hmm. where now he gets it once every nine or ten days. But Mm -hmm. it really only took those three weeks of of the acute stage of treatment for for the bipolar disorder to be stabilized. So ECT does, uh, the kids, the people just respond pretty quickly to ECT. So uh, when you try it, um, it's not like, some medications that require weeks and weeks to build up, you know, in the bloodstream and you have to up sure. the dose very carefully. You know, if you uh, decide to try ECT and after a month it's not helping, it probably isn't going to help. You know, I'm, I'm, you mentioned medication and, and, and this is, that's what kind of made me think of this, this next question for you is, you know, I, I think of a lot of medications out there. I know you mentioned uh, Risperidol um, earlier in our conversation and, you know, that medication has side effects to it. Um, have you and Dona experienced any side effects, or are there any other side, reported side effects to to ECT? Well, ECT does have some side effects. 
uh, particularly around the acute course of treatment. Uh, there can be some memory loss of kind of things that have been happening right during that acute course of treatment. And with Jonah, it's really hard to assess that kind of thing. He sure. has, I mean, he is verbal. He's kind of minimally verbal. And he still talks sometimes okay. about teachers he had when he was in kindergarten. So the memory loss, I mean, it's not anything that we've been able to assess. Um, also, some people can have uh, nausea and headache around the time of treatment. Jonah has never had any of that that I can, that I can tell. Um, but yeah. I will say that there's a lot of research about the cognitive effects of ECT, especially in young people who get it, because, of course, doctors are very, very concerned about that threat. Right. You know, and as you can imagine, like sure. the anti-ECT movement, they make it sound like it's an electrical lobotomy and it's brain damage, and that's right. their, their mantra. And I will say that the doctors who perform ECT are very, very concerned about long-term effects, and there isn't a ton of research involving uh, teenagers just because mm-hmm. teenagers don't typically have the types of uh, psychiatric disorders that respond to ECT, but there is some. And for, ex- for example, there was one sure. study, um, out of France that looked at, I think it was out of France, that, that took a group of uh, teenagers who had gotten ECT and compared them five years later to um, peers who had the same diagnoses, but did not end up getting ECT. They ended up being treated just with medication, and they found no difference five years later on any cognitive parameters. Uh, there was no long-term uh, damage or difference between the groups. Sure. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, the, 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 the research piece and, and some of kind of like the um, smaller amount of research done in, in certain ages, I mean, that, that makes sense. Also, just from a pure diagnosis point of view, is a lot of these psychiatric disorders, you know, are very hard to diagnose in younger individuals. You know, a lot of them you think of them as being commonly diagnosed in like in the teenage years. So that would make sense as well. Right, and or they or they may not appear until the twenties. You know, like right, right. Um, you know, it's. You know, I'm just kind of curious and just, you know, you, you kind of touched on it before, um, you know, the, the, the options in front of you. And, and, and I think you, you really did a great job of kind of like articulating it in a way that really is kind of still kind of sticking with me as, I, as, I, as I'm thinking about it. It's just, you know, the option of the safety risk to, to Jonah to you, to, to your family, versus, you know, this treatment. I mean, was – I know you've got a medical doctor who is, you know, truly giving you this medical recommendation that is – that he believes to be the very best course of treatment. Um, what You know, I, thinking of that, you know, back when he was nine or, or I guess probably ten um, after that year after um, he had started to destabilize, was – you know, what was it like making this decision? I, mean, I have to assume that this is a, a very difficult decision, one that you guys put a ton of thought into before doing. Um, you know, what, what was that kind of thought process like? And, and uh, can you share with us a little bit kind of like that, just kind of what went into it? Um, well, I, I think this will not be that surprising to other parents of kids as aggressive or self-injurious as Jonah was, but this was not a hard decision. This was actually a pretty easy decision. Um, We Mm. were at a point where um, Jonah's aggressive behavior had become unmanageable again, even after going Mm -hmm. to the best hospital in the country for treating this population. He was at the Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore. And um, all the gains he had made there had evaporated. We... um, just to make it a little more concrete for you, um, right before one of the triggering events for uh, pursuing ECT was Jonah was um, riding in the car with his dad and aide and my father-in-law. They were going somewhere, and Jonah started to rage in the car uh, for no real reason. And Andy, my husband, was trying to just 
mm-hmm. kind of restrain him in the car from attacking my father-in-law who was driving, you know, 80, my 80-year-old father-in-law. And yeah. Andy ended up just breaking Jonah's arm. Just Jonah was so strong and was raging so wow. hard that the force Andy had to exert to hold him back just snapped his, the upper part of his arm. And it was the most traumatic experience for, for all of us. You know, we were faced yeah. with this possibility that it wouldn't be safe for Jonah to live at home anymore, not for him and not for us. And the idea of going down the medication road again, you know, of trying the same medications that we had already tried before, but maybe in slightly different mm-hmm. dosages or a slightly different combination and experimenting with this all at, at home in a very kind of, you know, relatively unsafe environment to manage, you know, these types of medication adjustments was, was just so, you know, scary and upsetting. And when yeah. we decided to try ECT, it was something that was one new that we hadn't tried yet. And it had sure. been so efficacious in kids who were, you know, had a similar profile to Jonah. I couldn't wait to try it, honestly, because it seemed like our yeah. only hope. You know, you know, this is something that you know I'm curious about. I mean, and I, I so appreciate you sharing all that because I feel like it, you know, from at least for me, like I feel like the, 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 it just puts a different perspective. Like I'm, 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 I'm kind of able to start getting past some of the preconceived notions of it. Like 35 minutes ago, when we, when, when you and I first started this conversation, compared to as we've kept going through everything, um, you know. You've got so much documented effectiveness here. Um, there's families talking about, you know, the word you use, transformative. I mean, that's a powerful, powerful word. And we're talking about a very extreme kind of level of aggression and, and behaviors um, for these individuals on the spectrum that we're talking about here. Um, you know, any thoughts as to why it's not used more, um, uh, used more with the population or, or you know, or maybe potentially even why maybe it's not talked about more within the, the population and like the therapy community. Right. Well, I think that using ECT to treat these behaviors is fairly new in the sense that mm-hmm. I think the first person I know of who was treated with ECT, you know, that was about 10 or 12 years ago. And yeah. you have a situation in the medical community where the population of child psychiatrists who treat autistic kids and the population of geriatric psychiatrists who perform ECT, because typically, and that's typically the type of doctor who provides ECT or geriatric psychiatrists, because that's the most common population in which ECT is used to treat uh, very severe depression in the elderly. So there's, mm-hmm. you can imagine a Venn diagram with two circles containing these two types of doctors and imagine zero overlap between them. Yeah. Then you see part of the problem is that child psychiatrists don't know, um, often don't know that ECT can be really helpful to treat their patients. And, you know, geriatric psychiatrists don't know anything about autism. So they're not soliciting those patients. And and typically you need somebody to put a team together where you have the psychiatrist who provides the ECT, but it may not be, and and it's not always the case because some ECT providers do know something about autism or they might have a background child psychiatrist. I'm just making some generalities here. But um, typically Mm -hmm. you need a team where you have a child psychiatrist who guides the treatment and the ECT doctor may not have anything to do with the day-to-day treatment of the child or, or what kind of medication he should be on or what kind of school he should go to or anything like that, but, but they just, that, that office just provides the ECT as a service. And so it's kind of about putting gotcha. these teams together and letting, and just letting child psychiatrists know that, you know, how therapeutic ECT can be and also get, you know, these ECT providers to be willing to open their offices to autistic kids who might be very difficult to manage at first because they're not stabilized, Mm -hmm. they have no idea what's happening, you know, at first. So when I say that, you know, Jonah doesn't mind going at all to ECT and he likes to talk with his 
anesthesiologist about what treat he's going to get afterwards. That's now. Mm-hmm. But the very first time he went, he had to be sure. held down because he had no idea what was happening. And plus, he wasn't particularly right. stable, you know, at that moment. So um, ECT doctors have to be willing to kind of welcome that into their practice. So what do you see as the next step? You know, there's uh, clearly there's a degree of, of, of awareness and, and education and, and dialogue that needs to take place. You know, what do you, what do you see as kind of like those next steps um, for all of this? Well, I do think there's more discussion about, about ECT as a treatment for dangerous behaviors. I told you about the mm-hmm. BBC documentary that was just... Yeah. Uh, just released, and the producer actually just emailed me this past week to say that there has been so much interest and so much positive response that he wants to make an hour-long, you know, version of the documentary. Wow. And would we be interested in kind of participating in a longer version? And there's also been um, some articles that came out. So, for example, um, there was an article that was published on the website uh, Spectrum, which is an odd, a big autism website, and that was reposted by The Atlantic on the use of mm-hmm. ECT to treat uh, kids with autism. So there's just more interest, and all of that is good for, for furthering the dialogue. And, you know, I'm hoping to um, – I am putting together a panel with some doctors that I've worked with to go to big autism conference next year and present, you know, some cases about – uh, nice. about how ECT has been so beneficial, just trying to kind of generate that conversation. Not that everybody, all the parents of all the aggressive autistic kids are going to go run out and demand ECT, uh, but they should just know it's right. an option. So, for example, uh, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry just released a parent medication guide for autism last year, and they mm-hmm. did include ECT as an option for what to consider if medication wow. fails. So you're kind of seeing, you know, ECT pop up in this context of treating kids with autism in lots of different places. And so hopefully, they'll, you know, it'll get some traction and get some more attention. Well, I think that, you know, that, that last point, um, that seems huge to me, is you have this, this medical organization, the psychiatric organization saying, like, you should consider this. This isn't... You know, to, to publish that seems like a very big, powerful statement, um, and mm-hmm. it's and it it's not one I was aware of. You know, the, I'm hearing that for the very first time from from you right now, and it's, you know, I, I really agree with your point. You know, it's how I, I feel like whether or not this is the right option for an individual, for a family, whether or not someone therapeutically says this is what. I do or believe in or or even agree with, that feels like less of the point. Like we need to be aware of what is going on out there. I mean, I'm I feel like not knowing about it, it you know, especially I I'm speaking for myself and just as like a professional providing treatment and, and working with having worked with many aggressives of, of children, like I feel like not knowing about this, not knowing about this research is a disservice to the people I'm working with. And so it's just, I think the dialogue you're talking about is just so valuable for all of us to be aware of. You know, I I absolutely agree, obviously. Um, And I think there's a lot of families suffering out there, um, especially those who are are kind of going on with the belief that they can do something to control Mm -hmm. their child's aggressive or self-injurious behavior, that they just haven't gotten to the point where they understand that this is, um, you know, that for some of these children, that there is an underlying medical issue. And no matter how many Mm -hmm. different types of behavior plans they run or how strict they are about it and or how much of their own lives they give up to run these behavior plans, that there's nothing Mm -hmm. they can do. That if the child cannot control the behavior, there's no behavior plan in the world that can address it. And once you start thinking about, what might be the comorbid, you know, medical condition that is driving this behavior, then it kind of takes the blame off the parents and opens up a lot of options for how to control the behavior. Yeah. Um, 
I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Um, you know, I, 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 I still have so many thoughts running through my head, um, but they're very, they're very different thoughts than when we started having this, this conversation. You know, it, it's, I, I feel like, as I said before, I just, I find this so interesting. Um, I, I really appreciate not only sharing kind of these uh, about the treatment, um, but, but sharing your story as well as Jonah's story in all of this, because I think, you know, you, you kind of you kind of referenced it a little here and there. Like again, just me being a behavior analyst, like you mentioned KKI and you mentioned the inpatient. Like again, like the the picture I have, the the, the imagery I have is it becomes more and more vivid. Like I know that program, I know people there. I, I know yeah. some of the good, the bad. I know other families who I've worked with who, you know, I, I can imagine that nine-year-old, okay, he's come back from KKI. There is this regression. The behaviors have destabilized. I, I've seen that. And and that's not a negative commentary on KKI. That That, as you said, is this is a child who has something else going on. There is something mm-hmm. else at play here that medically needed to be treated, um, you know, it's, it's just, as I said to you before, it's like what my image was as we started and it didn't, does not line up with where I'm kind of leaving this dialogue. And, and, you know, and that was really one of the biggest reasons why I just was really excited to have you on the show is um, I felt like this was something that was really great to talk about and learn about. Um, and and um, I just really appreciate just all of your candidness. Um, this has just been so informative. Oh, well, thank you so much. I mean, that's why I wrote my book. That's why I go yeah. to conferences and speak about my our experience. And when I talk about Jonah, is because it's exactly for that reason. Just people have a lot of incomplete information, a lot of old information, yeah. a lot of very biased. Uh, misinformation mm-hmm. about ECT and just trying to get the information out there for the sole purpose of the other families who are like we were, you know, about eight years ago, because, you know, the quality of life of an entire family can be, can be improved so dramatically by treating these behaviors, then it's worth, you know, all the effort to get that information out there. You know, one one I, I was going to say goodbye, but then I have one more question that popped into my head because, sure. as I said, I've, there's a lot going going through it right now. Um, you know, he, again, we're we're talking about you know these extreme behaviors. We're talking about some a lot of different diagnoses at play here. We're not talking about you know. Um, you know, just a child diagnosed with autism who is demonstrating social delays or communication delays. You know, is there um when when we're talking about some of these these types of kids, some of these families who who are in the same who who are today in the same situation that you found yourself in when Jonah was nine. I mean, do you, who would you recommend they start talking to? Is is there is it starting with a doctor? Is it starting with a parent group? Is it starting with a treatment center? If a family's in that position, as you found yourself in, where, where would you recommend they turn and, and, and kind of start maybe not even just an ECT conversation, but just a conversation of what what else we should try and where else should we look? Well, when parent, a lot of parents have found me through the Easy Foundation uh, we have a website which has a, a resource guide with a list of child psychiatrists and, and ECT providers and other services that um, focus on kids with severe behavior. So these are not kids with mild or um, right. manageable behaviors. These are families like we were. And, you know, so the number one question I ask them when they call is, you know, something we talked about earlier, which is are these behaviors operant that is caused by the environment or are they intrinsic, you know, caused by almost always some kind of underlying neurological or medical issue? Um, Because there's nothing that ECT or medication can do uh, to treat behaviors that are caused and reinforced by the environment, as I'm sure I don't have to explain to you you know, that Mm -hmm. um, a good behavior plan is going to treat kids who who aggress because they want something or to get out of something. Um, But for those parents who say, yes, my children's, my child's behavior 
um, occurs across all environments. It's unpredictable. Uh, there's nothing in the environment that triggers it. I, you know, they just have to realize that there's almost certainly some kind of underlying medical condition and it involves the medical route, you know, finding a great child psychiatrist uh, to work with. Because, mm-hmm. of course, you're not going to start with ECT. You'll probably start with um, medications. Sure. And some kids do respond to medications, and that's great because yeah. ECT is, you do have to kind of commit to it for the long term. It's certainly not as easy as, you know, taking a pill. Uh, so right. that would be the place to start. Is But you need to find a child psychiatrist that has a lot of experience working with this population. Um, mm-hmm. And not all of them do. So, and of course, if the behaviors are, you know, don't respond to medication, the, the doctor that the family has chosen is not helpful, there, there are inpatient units across the country specifically for kids with developmental disabilities like autism, often with intellectual disability and these extreme mm-hmm. behaviors. So Kennedy Krieger is the most famous in this country, but there's nine, I believe, at last count, and most of them are on the East Coast, but not all of them. And there's one Spring Harbor Hospitals in Maine. Um, I think there's a unit in Michigan. So uh, it's about find, finding, you know, the resources that will support your family. Yeah. And, um, you know, ECT, I will say one more thing is that, is that yeah, please, it's, uh, it's depending on where you live, it may or may be an op- may or may not be an option for you. So there are five states in the country where it's not legal to give ECT to a minor, like California or in Colorado. Um, and there are other states where it's legal, but it's just there's no ECT providers nearby. So it kind of right. depends on where you live as to whether this treatment is even accessible for your child. Um, do me a favor. You, you mentioned it already. Let me, let me have you mention it one more time. The, um, the Easy Foundation website, if, uh, if people want to learn more about the organization, um, how do they find you? Right. It's uh, www.easyeasifoundation, one word, dot org. And I would also um, Amy, add that so- those who are oh, – one, one more thing is that I would ask people who are interested yeah, in learning more about ECT in particular, there are a lot of uh, – resources on my author website that they can just look at, and that's at uh, www.amyssensfranklutz.com, including lots of uh, a bibliography of scientific studies on ECT and, and articles to read. So that would be another place if people were interested in ECT in particular. Uh, you know, thank you so much. I, I appreciate you being here. Um, again, um, I think this has just been, you know, just th- to have this conversation um, has just been, I think, really valuable. It's good to, uh, you know, I-, I still think I'm kind of like in that point where I'm like weighing all these different things of like, well, how do I feel about this? And, and, and what do I think about all these things? But my my notions are, have really kind of changed. Like my perception of everything has really changed. And, and hearing your story has, has helped that so much. Um and I'm I'm really excited to hear that you're doing the the conference tour, because I'm actually really um, hopeful to to be able to um, attend some of those conferences. I'm hoping that it's some of the the groups that that I go to, you know, annually, um, because I think continuing this dialogue is is just really really valuable, um, um, especially when we're talking about the population of kids that we're talking about. So um, so thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, like I said, I, I think I think today's show really um, is a great example of why we have conversations. You know, as I said to Amy, I'm not I'm not 100% sure how I feel about ECT, and um, I don't know. I, I really don't know exactly if I'm if I'm pro, if I'm con. If you know, I I don't know if it's something that I would necessarily say. Well, yes, I I recommend this, but. I, I do know that my opinion of it has changed. Um, I think I'm still kind of coming to to terms with my opinion of it, but hearing her story and kind of breaking down some of, I think, those like preconceived notions that like one flew over the cuckoo's nest idea is um, is important. To have an, an accurate description or, or picture of, of what it is is important. Um, you know, like I said, I don't know... 
I don't really know where I where where I stand. It's it's one of the topics that I think has been the hardest for me to process um, that we've talked about on this show, you know, in, in in any direction. But but I know that what I came out of today's conversation is very different than what I came into it, and um, and I really value that. And, and I feel way more equipped to to have a conversation with someone else about it, and and actually really kind of looking forward to having another conversation about this because I think um, regardless of, of if where I fall in all of this, having these conversations and having an understanding of what this is and why it is something people are pursuing and why it's worked for some people is as clearly, you know, as, as you listen to Amy and, and hear how it's helped her and her, her son, it's, um, it, it's something to discuss. It's something to consider and, and, and clearly this is something that is, must be considered, at least, in some of these extreme cases that, that we were talking about on the show. Um, so I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Um, I, I hope it starts some good conversations for you. And, and even if it's not appropriate for your child, which, which odds are it's not, um, it, it, it keeps that thought process going. It keeps us more informed with one another. Um, if you want to talk to us, please reach out. More info at autismtherapies.com. Find us on Facebook. I'm part of the Autism Spectrum Therapies Facebook page. Um, and we will talk to you next time with a new guest and a new show. Take care, everybody. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.learnitsystems.org backslash family. Know an inspiring group or individual we should talk to? We would love to hear more from you at moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Want to hear more? Listen to previous episodes at www.allautismtalk.com. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.